welcome to this special episode of the Zero Alpha podcast. We have some special guests here, Lynette and Neil Silver, and also here we have our PR cadet members, Chelsea and Gus, and we're just going to have a chat about the amazing uh, experiences and work that Lynette and Neil have done. So Lynette, let's start with you. Um, you are one of the top Australian military history researchers, I believe, is that right? Oh, I'm known as the history detective, so I suppose that's some measure, yes. Um, I, I, I don't ever rank myself, but other people do. Okay. What sparked your original interest in researching Australian history? Um, I found papers relating to gold discovery in colonial history, which had been lost for 134 years, this back in the 1980s, and had been looked for, looked for by eminent historians, but no one had found them. Yeah. And um, I found them, they were, and that was my first book, was on gold discovery. And I discovered from other people that I, apparently I don't think like anybody else. Oh, okay. <laughs> what did that mean? Well, that means that my method of, of research is, is unorthodox. Okay. The way I go about it, which is how um, apparently I, I found all these papers when nobody else did, including Jeffrey Blaney. Looked for them for years and never found them. So I did a lot of lateral thinking and lo and behold, found everything. So where did you manage to find it then? They filed under somebody else's name in the colonial office in London. Oh. Did you have to travel over to no, London? No, no. We had a thing called the Australian Joint Copying Project, which was on microfilm. And um, fortunately, this paperwork had only just been done as part of that project about a week before I located where it was and uh, the film was sent out and I sat there in the Mitchell Library and read it. Was this all related to the Fool's Gold book? Yes. Okay. Yes, I to do with that. Fantastic. What drew you to researching particularly Australian military history? Uh, I started out being interested in the uh, clandestine raids on Singapore Harbour in 1943 and 1944 where small groups of commandos were infiltrated behind the lines, and um, that resulted in two books, uh, The Heroes of Rimau, and, uh, which was the name of the operation, and Cripe, the fishing boat that went to war, which was right. the little boat that took them. And from that, I developed a very big interest in the fall of Singapore, which is where the raids were carried out, and from that led on to prisoners of war. So it was really a, a process that went from one step to the other. What are the keys to being an investigative history researcher? Uh, you need to keep. You need to have a very inquiring mind. You need to keep an open mind. You don't take everything at face value, and you believe everything you read until you find somebody's lying. So it's a bit like being in a court of law. You need to examine the evidence. You need to dissociate yourself from the story. You can't have any emotional attachment or bias, which is why the stories I do, if I had somebody in my family involved, you could not possibly be objective. So you need to look at the whole story as a whole, both sides, and always keep an open mind. And, and if something doesn't add up, you then go and find out why it doesn't add up. And that's when you usually you, um, you crack whatever you're doing. So did you, uh, through high school or university, did you study history? Were you along these lines? How did you end up at this position? Um, I had a father who was absolutely mad on Australian history and every school holidays we would get in the car and we would follow in the footsteps of human hovel going the way they went. And uh, by the time I was out of primary school, I'd been pretty much oh, everywhere in New South Wales, Victoria and South Australia. And by the time I was in high school, we'd done over the rest of the country. Uh, back in 1961, we were out at Ayers Rock, and back when nobody climbed the rock, and 
Um, when you did climb it, you wrote your name on a piece of paper in the screw top jar at the top, and my father and I were the only two there. Wow. So, so it was. Yes. So it was. Uh, it was. It was something that developed from him. He was mad on Australian history, and I also had extremely good teachers in primary school. When we did Australian history, they. They were so good that, you know, they'd tell the story of Kennedy or something and all the kids in the class would be crying, you know, when he was, when he died. So it, I think it was that that interested me. But I, I couldn't do it at high school because there were too many kids in the history class and they put me into geography, which um, was actually very good because I, I enjoy geography and you can learn history. You can learn it from books. Yeah, it's easy. Absolutely. Yeah. How did the idea to write a book on the Santa Can arise? Um... Goodness, there's a very long answer. I'll try and keep it short. Um, I met a lady whose relative's fate had been uncovered by me in my book, The Heroes of Remount, and she asked me, could I write a book on Sundakan? And I said, um, well, there's been a few couple of books written recently. They're fairly low level, but you just can't keep on recycling a story because you think you might do it better. And, uh, but she kept me in contact with me. She introduced me to um, two of the six survivors who were still alive. I became very friendly with them and I started to collect information and told her that if I found an aspect of the story that warranted an investigation, yes, I would look at it. And that aspect was the plan to rescue the prisoners of war. And one day in 1995, uh, after I collected a fair bit of information, I questioned the accepted story that the prisoners had not been rescued by paratroop team teams in 1945 because General MacArthur, who was in control of everything, the American general, had refused to supply the necessary aircraft. And I knew the Philippines had been retake, retaken, that he had 600 aircraft and we only needed 30, that he backed the plan from day one the whole year before, so why would he at the last minute pull the plug? And as I had a background in special operations and knew that there had been cover-ups at a high level when things had gone wrong behind the lines, like quite serious cover-ups, where the Japanese had gone free because um, people were not allowed to testify in court. And I thought, well, if the um, people at the top are willing to let Japanese war criminals go free to save their backsides, basically, what might happen if something had gone wrong at the secret level in Borneo? So I went chasing the secret operations files and lo and behold discovered in about a day or so looking that um, the intelligence being collected for the rescue had been completely messed up, incompetently done, terrible. And as a result, the rescue mission had been cancelled 10 days before it was to take place. Wow. Uh, that had all been, all that material had been removed from the files, that the original file had been filleted, uh, everything was missing, but I knew from experience that the army and the military never keep one copy of anything, and went into uh, lower level files where I found the intelligence reports coming in from the field, and um, there was a decoded secret signal in there which said in April of 1945, we have reliable information that all prisoners of war have been moved from Sundakan camp to the west coast where they now are. We expect confirmation in a fortnight. So I knew they hadn't been moved. I knew that some had gone on the march, but most of them were still there. And in a fortnight, the uh, second message came through to say, we now confirm there is nobody at the Sundakan POW camp. Party leader requests bombing at earliest convenience. Mm -hmm. and at that point, we started to attack the camp, and that eventually forced the remaining prisoners and the Japanese to move into the interior, which created what we call the Second Death March. Um, uh, by the time they discovered the intelligence was wrong, 
completely wrong, because they were there, it was all too late. It was just too late to do anything about it. And we lost everybody. About a thousand people that could have been saved were lost. Wow. There are two things in there that you said that I wanted to pick up on. One, you said you have a background in special operations. Yes. Can you explain that? Oh, special operations Australia. That's the um, equivalent of SOE in uh, Europe in the Second World War. These are clandestine missions, highly secret. I suppose they'd be close to the SAS today, but no one was answerable to anybody except to General Blaney, who was at the top of the tree in Australia, and no government and no regular army person should ever know what these fellows were getting up to. It actually says that. They're at the, at the government and the army must be in a position at all times to deny everything. So this is secret undercover work and I had written two books on that subject so I knew how the system worked. And uh, that's why I became very suspicious when I knew that the secret operations team was in the field collecting intelligence. Uh, that I thought, I wonder if something's gone wrong at the secret level. And that's what had got wrong, and that's why the rescue mission was cancelled. And the second point, uh, you said you were able to meet two of the survivors from Sandarkin? Yes, we had six out of the 2,000, almost 500. Uh, by the time I became very interested in this story, there were three left alive, and I met two of them and became very friendly with them, and then I met the third one. But um, when I, by the time I met them, they'd been, they were fed up with talking to journalists who didn't know the story and were using them as a source, so they were very gun-shy of talking to anybody. And um, I sat, I knew the story, I knew it backwards by this stage, and sat down and, and they realised, well, Keith Bottrell in particular, the first one, realised that I knew a huge amount of what he'd been doing. And after I talked to him for about an hour, the first time he said, do you know, you're the first person I've ever talked to who knows what I'm actually talking about. And from then on we became very good friends and he would talk to me as if I'd been in the prisoner of war camp with him. He would actually have a conversation, hey Lynette, remember the day something happened? And uh, as he got uh, towards death, he had uh, terminal emphysema, he became more um, forth forthcoming. He admitted to things he'd never spoken about before and um, in the end, basically, um, I was able to get information that people hadn't been able to get for years and years, purely, purely because um, we just had this great rapport. It was amazing. How did you find that, hearing these details that nobody else had heard before? Was it a heavy load on you? Or um, no, because I was fairly practised by this stage. I mean, when I started to, to get into Second World War and war crimes, particularly with Remau, where uh, 10, 10 of them were beheaded and 23 others came to terrible ends, and uh, you're reading Japanese confessions and some of the stuff's pretty torrid. Um, at that time, there was a very awful murder trial going on in Sydney, the murder of a girl called Anita Cobby, who'd been terribly killed in a terrible way. And that was all over the papers. And the details were so bad that when you read it, I think how I thought to myself, now that judge has to sit in that court every day and listen to this prosecution evidence. He can't let himself get involved. He can't get emotionally involved. You just got to listen for the evidence. So I taught myself when I was doing this sort of work to only listen or read for the facts. And you've got to be, keep yourself totally dispassionate because the stories of, that I deal with are so bad that the facts speak for themselves. You don't need to use emotive language. You don't need to use the word barbaric or disgraceful or anything. You just tell it like it is. And I train myself to do that. And I, I, can, I can read this stuff now and I can actually talk about it. And, you know, really awful war crimes. And uh, it doesn't have any emotional effect on me at all. You are a recognised expert in identifying previously unidentified graves of servicemen. Can you describe this process? 
Yes. Um, it's a matter of matching documentation. I don't physically go and dig people up. But what happened, particularly over in Borneo, was that um, people on the march, in particular, um, went along and the Japanese kept track of where they died. I know this sounds incredible, but it's true. Because although they didn't care if the prisoners of war died, they were accountable for them. So if you set, set out with a group of 50 and you arrive with 35 at the other end, somebody's going to be asking where they are. So the easiest way to do it is actually to note down where they died, the time they died and what they died of. Now, if they, they had malaria and couldn't go any further and someone put a bullet through their head, they didn't record that, they wrote malaria as the cause of death. So you have a whole set of Japanese um, documents that I found which show where people, individuals died. On the other hand, like one to two years later, we have a war graves recovery teams coming in from Australia, going into um, exhumed bodies that have been buried in a POW cemetery or looking for the remains that are scattered all the way along the death march. Might be right beside the track, might be 100 metres away because they've wandered into the bush to die. So three searches went on along the death march track, the full length of it. And eventually they went out to um, 100 metres either side. And, and when they found somebody, they would record where the body was found. Now, when you have a match, what you do is you, you go along and you find out that somebody died at, I don't know, let's say, 11 miles from Rana. That's the end of the journey. 11 miles from Rana is where Quayley, Alan Quayley died, a boy from Redfern, a very tough sort of guy. And that's why the Redfern RSL have just sent us a cheque for $9,000 for the Scholarship Trust. They give us a lot of money in memory of Alan Quayley. Now, Quayley died um, 11 miles along the track from Renau, and the Japanese wrote that down and with his date of death. And then when I went into the recovery teams, and um, then they got volumes and volumes, you can imagine huge amounts of records, um, follow that through, and every time they found a set of remains, they made out a little card, which I discovered in archives. Nobody knew they existed till I actually found them. 22,000 22, cards, originally. And I went through those, and on that card it records where this particular unknown soldier or remains was found. So they record down where it is, and there it was, 11 miles from Ranau, one mile from Nullapak. And so now I had somebody I knew who died there, and somebody, a body I died there. But were they the only two? And this is where the hard start comes in. You need to go through every one of 2,200 uh, pieces of paper relating to the Sandakan deaths, that's 2,200 unknown people, people unidentified. You need to go through every one of those that the Wargraves recovery people found and then you need to go through every single one of the 2,500 names which the Japanese had to show the place of death. And if you get Japanese saying that one person died 11 miles from Renau and one body's found at that particular spot, then you have a match. And then that's all got to be submitted to the Commonwealth War Graves Commission and they've got to be convinced that this has to be that soldier. So I think I've done about 42 so far. But it only works if um, somebody died in a particular place. I can't do it for the cemeteries because they're all just muddled up together. It's got to be a specific place, a specific river crossing, um, particular mile spot in a particular bomb crater near an airfield that they know someone was buried and one body's found there and that's how you do it. No, no, there's nothing, nothing to identify them. 
So there's no particular identification that stands out? Or? Oh yes, the first one I ever did was with a fellow called Richard Murray. He was a great friend of Keith Bottrell and the two of them had made it on the first death march. They'd reached Ranau and they realised that with people dying like flies, which they were, and the numbers getting uh, every day, 10, 12 dying, that unless they escaped, they'd go the same way as everybody else, uh, through dysentery mostly. Um, and they found a Japanese store, and they, the four of them, uh, broke into it and got some food, um, rice, and some ship's biscuits, which were like hard tack. They were in little calico bags. Um, they gave some of the rice to the sick, who were in the camp, and they hid some of it out in the jungle. And in order to carry it, Richard Murray kept the calico bag that the ship's tack biscuits had come in, so they'd have something to carry this rice in when they escaped. He hid it under the POW hut. Now, it was only about a metre off the floor, so for reasons we will never know, one of the guards one day, while they were waiting for their time to escape, bent down, looked underneath and saw this calico bag, hauled it out with his bayonet, realised it was Japanese issue, went to the rice store, realised they had been robbed, and then lined up about 30 prisoners who were still alive from the first march. Now, 455 went on the first march, about 30 still alive at this stage. Two lines rounding and ra raving and wag wagging swords, swords around and demanding that the uh, guilty per party own up. And Keith was standing in the second row and his friend Murray was in front of him. There were four involved, as I said, and Keith's whispering along the line, don't say anything, they can't kill us all. But Murray was older, he was 28, and uh, he realised that the Japanese were perfectly capable of killing everybody. So he took one step forward and he said, I stole the food and I gave it to everybody, and after that, Japanese took him away and beat him up. And then about an hour or so later, um, took him down and bayoneted him to death and threw his body into a bomb crater. Um, he was buried, therefore, outside the camp in a bomb crater, and that information was not known. Keith Bottrell, his friend, looked for the body. He knew he'd been taken away, couldn't find him. And it wasn't till 1946 in Rabaul, where there were war crimes trials being held, that um, the investigating officers on our side revealed that they put a stool, Japanese stool pigeon in with suspects in a cell. And the stool pigeon had reported that Private Murray had been bayoneted to death and his body had been thrown in a bomb crater. Now, they had the confession, but they didn't go after the culprit because they had him on another capital charge. And they wanted to protect the identity of the stool pigeon, who was very handy for getting information. So nobody ever went over after the people who murdered Murray and it wasn't until Bottrell told me this story towards the end of his life about his friend. And I said, where do you think he is? He said, I suppose he's still in the jungle. And then months and months and months later, when I was going through these little cards and the Walgrave's recovery stuff, there I found, recovered, ran our map reference, one body, bomb crater. And I thought, well, is this, is this the bomb crater? <laughs> and uh, fortunately, I was able to get the original map they'd used, the wartime map, and do the coordinates and found that the coordinates matched exactly on the side of the hill where the bomb crater had been, where he'd been put. And that was the first match that we had. So that was Murray. Wow, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. That's um, when I realised how it could be done. I thought, well, if I can do it for him, I can do it for perhaps some of the others. So that's when I started to sift through. I'd only found one the other day. Um, I was going through and he's gone off and he's been considered now for a headstone. He, in the cemetery. Oh, what I have to do after that is, once I find out that I've got the match, I then have to trace that particular set of remains. So when they find an unidentified person, they give them a one-off serial number. A bit like on your TV set, right? Or your car. 
and that those remains are then kept track of to a holding cemetery. So you know where the body's gone to the holding cemetery. When that exhumation takes place to go to the Commonwealth War Grave Cemetery, all the paperwork is chased. And it was only the discovery that this information was kept back in 1997. I discovered the information existed. No one else knew about anything about it at that stage. Um, archives, uh, I had a carte blanche from people to look at anything I wanted to look at and the head of archives sent me a message to say, we've got 22 boxes of material here and we don't know what it is. But you might know when you come. So I went in and what it was was all the little cards on every single Australian who died in the Second World War. Wow. Boxes and boxes of them. And what I had to do then was sort out, I think it was what, 30, 30 I got 39,000 down to 22,000, which was far east, then the 22,000 got down to 2,200, which was just Borneo. Once I, once I got to that level, it was easier. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine it would be a bit easier now uh, getting the cards down.